Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey Greasters, I hope you're having an okay week. Um, Just want to say another huge thank you for all your wonderful response to um, the book being announced. Uh, If you haven't seen, I've been banging on about it on social media. It's called You Are Not Alone and it is out next year, January 2023 and you can pre-order now. If you head to the Twitter or Instagram at The Griefcast, you can find the pre-order link for Waterstones. You can pre-order it wherever you want to, but uh, the main thing is pre-orders really, really, really help. So um, if you have done already, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. This week I'm talking to the incredible Lauren John-Joseph. They are a writer, an artist, a performer, performance artist. They've written for magazines, journals and they also have a new book that is out now called At Certain Points We Touch. Uh, It is an incredible book, extremely avant-garde, blow your mind off in a way. I don't think you've ever read a text quite like it. It's really, really interesting. Um, I loved speaking to them. They have had such an interesting take on what they've been through and how they see the world. Lauren spoke to me about their friend who died very tragically in 2012. So Lauren, who are we remembering today? Today we're remembering my friend Peter Alexander. What a beautiful name. You write about him in a very beautiful way, it fits the name. (laughs) Um, Yes, I mean I write about somebody who Peter was the, the germ of uh, an idea for a character. Um, in the book, the protagonist is in love with somebody called Thomas James. And the name is definitely an homage to Peter Alexander having these two uh, sort of first names. Um, two sort of weighty names as well. I would always yeah. tell Peter that he had um, a job to live up to the name of Alexander. You know, <laughs> there were so, so many poets and emperors and popes with that name yeah definitely it's a weighty name it's a very weighty name so um how long ago did peter die in 2012 actually so it's almost a decade how does that feel with it being a decade are you feeling we talk about this a lot on the show of like sometimes five years or 10 years or 15 years kind of has a weight to it as well are you feeling that at the moment It's strange because my book came out this year as well in the sort of Mm. 10th anniversary of his death and the book 
uh, sort of allowed me to finally come to terms with it. So now I, I sort of look on September 2022 as being a sort of as a period I'll sort of smile and reflect as opposed to maybe feeling such grief because I feel like I've finally processed things with the writing and the publication of mm. this book. So I, f I feel it in a way that there's a, a kind of peace that's going to come with that. Yeah, I can understand that. I've just finished a book about grief. But I really understand like sort of getting it on the page is almost like sort of viscerally removing it from yourself, you know, and you feel like it's it's over it's in a different space now to when it was just in your head absolutely and i i mean i felt like i was almost haunted and anyway sort of possessed by by this loss which became the the germ of the novel um and i didn't feel that i could face up to it and writing it was very very painful like hauntingly sad but once it was done once it was edited there was a sort of quiet relief and I could never have expected that to be the case but I'm, I'm very glad now not exactly to um, have set Peter and that grief aside from myself but to feel less um, enslaved to that grief maybe yeah I can relate to that yeah because it's not yeah, it's not like, oh, I, I, I'm fine. <laughs> it's gone. It's not a purging. It's just, I don't know, like, I feel like you're creating more ground for the grief to rest on. So it's like, yes. oh, it's not just me carrying it. There's like this shelf I can put it on now as well. <laughs> like, I would agree. I would um, agree, yeah. So how did you meet Peter, first of all? Uh, at a party, actually. Um, several parties. <laughs> we, we were just always around, kind of in each other's orbit. And there's a perverse streak to me in which if I find a person somewhat odious, then I also <laughs> find them um, completely fascinating. Likewise, yeah. if I'm aware that somebody does not like me, um, <laughs> I will have to pursue that and figure out, but yeah. why? Why don't you like me? I'm such a charming person. Um, and I've made friends with people <laughs> mainly on the grounds of wanting to win them over. Or finding yeah. it just really amusing that someone would be that plainly rude. Um, <laughs> and, and with Peter, it was something similar. I didn't really like him at all. Um, and it was just sheer kind of attrition, I suppose, that that he w wore me down. That he, he was <laughs> just everywhere. Um, and eventually I was like, oh, God, there's um, only one way to get rid of you. Only it didn't work, of course, because <laughs> then I became in inextricably involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you were together with Peter? Is that a, fray, um, a fair sentence or is it more complicated? <laughs> I wouldn't say together. There was no uh, actual formal relationship. I mean, I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of queer people, a lot of trans people, there's a real bleed between who your friends are and who your lovers are and who you're having relationships with and who you're having just romantic friendships with. And so we were having sex and we were spending a lot of time together, but we were never officially in a relationship. And it was also at a time where I had ended a long-term relationship. I wasn't really looking for a relationship. I think in a way he was, but I was... I think I was maybe more resistant to the idea than he was. And also I was traveling a lot. I was spending a lot of time in the States. So it didn't seem, at the time for me, it didn't seem 
that I desired a relationship with him, and it also wasn't pragmatic. But yet we were in each other's uh, orbit for for a long time, actually. Yeah. So how how long? So you, he died in 2012. When did you meet him? So how long were you sort of in each other's orbit? I would say it was sort of close to six years. Wow. And there were long stretches of that time where we we didn't talk at all. Um, we had a, had a had a big falling out, and he tried a couple of times to sort of. I wouldn't say patch it up, he never apologised, he wasn't that kind of person, but he did sort of make attempts to, you know, put the water under the bridge and suggest that maybe we could talk again or at least be on friendly terms, but I I really felt that he'd crossed a line and that um, that if I were to accept his <laughs> unuttered apology, then, you know, I would I would really never be out of that situation, which had actually become quite unpleasant between us. So were you speaking when he died or not, had the relationship? No, we weren't, we weren't talking at all. And I think that's why it was so difficult, because he died so suddenly and so violently, and we hadn't been talking. And yet, even though we hadn't been talking, he was never really far from my thoughts. Yeah. And so we died with so much that was not dealt with. That's a hard place to begin the the grief from. Would you mind saying what happened, how he died? Yes, um, I can tell you about that. He was he was a photographer, and he was actually assisting Wolfgang Tillmans, um, and doing doing very well um, as a as a young photographer. He was uh, twenty seven, almost twenty eight when he died, and he was at a party for Fashion Week in a house on French Place in Shoreditch and um, he was at the party. He had only been there for maybe half an hour or so and leant against a window but the window was open and so he fell through the window. He and another boy fell through the window and the other boy landed on a car and broke his pelvis but Peter hit the ground and died pretty much immediately. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, that's a lot. So young as well. Yes. So fucking young. Yes, and the the complete unpredictable nature yeah. of of a death like that, of an evening like that, at such a young age. And, you know, I think that was one of the most difficult things about it is because when somebody dies in all like that, um, you're left with a grief for them, but also you grieve the life you had before you lost them because in a way you also lose so much of your innocence and naivete you know you believe that you know people die you know they get sick they get old death is part of life but when something like that happens you, it fundamentally changes you as a person because for me anyway i became obsessed with death that it could be around mm. any corner every every experience became so fraught with a sort of you know destructive potential yeah we talk about it on the show as death anxiety yes because when when you've suffered a a traumatic grief of course the brain goes into survival mode and is like oh i see right people can just die like that so i need to be on guard all times like get it like you feel like you've learned a lesson so my dad died when i was 15 um very suddenly of cancer and that's exact i just felt like okay the moment anyone is sick they're gonna die so you just have to be like 
on edge all the time and you know saying goodbye to people is like everything's a last goodbye everything so I was like it's taken me years to be like less dramatic because <laughs> I'm always like goodbye yeah. I love you thank you and people, my friends are like okay Carrie, like we're just going but you feel this yeah like the weight of this lesson can't be ignored somehow that you've learned this thing so how did you find out like did you just literally get a phone call no actually I found out on Facebook Oh no! It was oh. yes, just and just Social in the media. in the in the lamest, most half-assed way that a couple of people had updated their statuses oh. to like R.I.P. Pete or whatever, and and I, I remember I'd I remember the afternoon I found out I'd been at the Edinburgh Fringe performing in a show the the whole of August, so I came back to London really exhausted. Um, and I guess a, a little depressed from having finished an enormous project. So I was sleeping yeah. late into the day and I was just so tired. And when I woke up and obviously, you know, fumbled towards Facebook and there it was. And I was so confused. I wasn't quite sure if I was awake or if they were talking about the same Peter. And um, I called my friend um, and I knew before he said, yes, it's true. I just asked him, is it true? And I could just hear in this in in his breath, really, mm. that it was. And that's something particularly new that we're having to navigate of like finding things out on social media because obviously it's so. Even though that was ten years ago, this is obviously still like a new world. And I've had guests before that have found out on Facebook. Actually, yes, <laughs> I think like that's like this weird. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't. It, it seems to be Facebook is the place people feel the need to write. Up, like, oh God, this has just happened. Facebook is. A... They can people can be very irresponsible. I think mm. because there's a feeling that although it's shared, it's somehow private, and maybe people aren't aware um, as to whom they're connected with. Yeah. I mean, I very rarely use Facebook these days. Not because of that, but it just seems kind of. Facebook is a platform for cool mums. Cooler mums <laughs> than I, for sure. Uh. Yeah, I know. And I think because Facebook was one of the first ones, I feel like it's when we, everyone has a Facebook profile, everyone connected to a lot of people, but they didn't realise how many people they connected to when they signed yes. up to Facebook. So I think people still think there's like 10 of their mates in there and like mm. close friends or people they went to school with. And you're like, you actually friends with like a thousand people and you've forgotten, like you accepted yes. all those friends back in yes. like 2011. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really crappy way. I mean, it's obviously, you know, there's no good way to find out, but to find out like that and have that rush, I guess, of like, is this real? Is this real? Oh God. And then getting it confirmed. There's a, um, there's a quite a lot in, in the book. And also I've written a couple of articles around the idea of digital grief of how, Things have changed, for example, you know, um, so you can find out that somebody's died. But also, if a profile doesn't get deactivated, then you can get messages saying, today is Peter's birthday. Yeah. And it is Peter's birthday, only you know, he's dead. Or uh, people can post to a, a sort of memorial page, and then you get those notices, um, for better or for worse, because... People can also say very mean, unkind, thoughtless things, and then that comes up into your feed. Uh, also, I had a friend called Hattie Hathaway, who uh, I knew in New York, and she had signed up for an automated Twitter service, which meant that every time there was a, a mass shooting in the US, her account would tweet, 
you know, ban automatic weapons now, oh, ban yeah, handguns yeah. now, sign this petition. And even after she died, uh, the wow. Twitter would generate these tweets telling you to, you know, sign a petition to ban automatic weapons, even though she was dead. So grief feels very different now. It's uh, it's automated and it's also public in a, in a sometimes a sinister way. The way that um, Peter died because it was so violent and so public and in such a sort of ritzy connotation, you know, fashion week, supermodels, death. It was very, um, also very salacious. So a lot of people who had never met him got involved and there's a real moralizing tone of like, well, if you're going to be at parties taking drugs, you know, uh, you know, or, or, or an, under, an underlying suge homophobic suggestion of like, well, that's what happens if you live this kind of lifestyle. Um, it wasn't, you know, a debauched 4am rave. It was you know, a fairly sedate fashion week party. Those parties are not desperately exciting. But yes, so you, your grief becomes a sort of public circus in a way. Yeah, we again, we talked about that a lot on the show, Digital Grief, because I'm what I refer to as an analogue griever, because my dad yes. died in 1998. So I'm like completely pre all of this world and how much it's changed and how Facebook has had to adapt, like you said, like the memorial and the legacy service. But yeah, I think that's there's so much there's so much going on in that beginning of that grief which i think can then lead to your you know so with want of a better word like your grief story your grief journey in that like you said you find on social media and then it being so public i think and i've had friends that have had that as well tragic accidents that the papers pick up on and they're left feeling like 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 you said they're talking about the person as if they have a, a part of them when they didn't have anything to do with them and I know that story. I've read that headline, you know, not this headline, but that idea, like you said, because someone's young and there was alcohol or drugs or, like you said, this salacious element. And there is this sense of, well, they deserved it hidden in subtext, in that sort of yes. British subtext that you only know from reading tabloids all your life of like, oh, I know what they're saying. And it's awful because it's just a really, really tragic accident. But then, yeah, did that affect your grief in a way that it was you know, in a newspaper and public and you were having yeah. a very different experience. It very much affected my grief because also there's not only the journalists with their, um, you know, low-key moral agendas, but people can comment on articles online. Oh, God, so yeah. you, I saw really terrible things, things like people who are just kind of making jokes about it oh. um, and then people who are just, yeah, flat out homophobic in a way because the tabloids had built a narrative around it that um, it was because everyone was drunk and lusty but he'd only been at the party for such a short amount of time yeah. and it was a work engagement and it was sort of early evening you know but because of that people felt free to you know bring their own moral viewpoints to it and it made me very angry and it made me experience I think I was experiencing a grief for Peter, a grief uh, for the way he was treated in death, but also a grief for, um, you know, I was grieving in a way for a life that is not possible in this homophobic and transphobic world. Mm. You know, like, you, you, you're never free of that, even in death. You know, people will, in a way, kind of make a, make a suggestion that a death like this is not just, well, if you're going to be silly and take drugs, but that there's some kind of like divine judgment mm. upon you. 
I don't know if you remember when um, Stephen Gately from Boyzone died. Mm. There was a big article which basically said in, in as many words, this is the reward you will reap for living this kind of homosexual, debauched lifestyle. And there was a backlash to that article, but I think a lot of people kind of agreed with that mm. judgment because we certainly haven't seen much of a shift in tone since. And that was probably in the early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really sad. It's really shameful that it still happens, but I, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think sometimes, you know, uh, like I live in London, I'm a performer, like my bubble is very accepting and, you know, not homophobic or transphobic, but it doesn't, you don't have to go far. Yeah, I think you're right. Not just like, because the drugs is one thing. I think there is that moral of like, well, you, you're playing fast and loose. You're doing something dangerous. And yes. it's the same, it's the same thought process that has with women of like, well, she was wearing a short skirt. Exactly. She was out late at night. It's the same thought process of, and what it is really is people sort of trying to build a wall amongst, around themselves from death. So they go, well, it wouldn't happen to me. I wouldn't do that because I don't take drugs and I don't go out later. I'm safe. They're trying to like shore up themselves. But like you said, it's such a vile way of doing it because in the same breath you're saying they sort of, yeah, they had it coming, isn't it? That's the thing. And that divine retribution, it's so weird for such a secular country, but I, I know exactly what you mean of like, well, it's just the, yeah, the homophobic, the transphobic and homophobic that, that, is, that we're still dealing with. We're still absolutely dealing with, even in 2022. I mean, we, I think we, maybe people think of this as being a secular country, but, um, you know, we still have a monarch who's there by the grace of God. We still have a monarch who is head of the Church of England, you know. So I'm not sure as, as secular as we believe in this country. It's just that maybe we aren't, maybe we aren't medieval Catholics anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the morality and that... Um, and there's 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 a very fundamental, and maybe even fundamentalist uh, Protestant belief system at work mm. in this country. Yeah, and I think especially it doesn't take well. You know, it's also intertwined, isn't it? Like the the moral the morality of this country and the media and the tabloids and the journalism that we live with, and it doesn't take much, like you said, for that to become a sensational story. And that's. It's so far removed from the person, right? Like you said, it just, it, it, it literally, like, washes him of, of who he was, who Peter was, and why he was there, and, you know, the fact that he's doing well. So he's at, like, uh, someone fancies house because he's doing well in his job, not like, yes. wow, up and coming, like, that. that's really tragic because he was young and doing well and was going to be this creative person. It's like the negative other side of the coin of, like, well, yeah, he was choosing to be in this dangerous place. It, yeah, that's really and the pictures really that were that were chosen for the articles too. There were a lot of pictures of him available, but they chose the most sort of stronger two a.m. red-eyed no. pictures that they found on someone's you know, MySpace profile. <laughs> but there are so many beautiful pictures of him, like holding a stuffed cuddly owl. Yeah. Um, that you know because he had a very soft side to him but obviously that doesn't fit the the party boy no. narrative actually i i went to a, a wolfgang tillman's exhibition at uh maureen paley a couple of years ago and in amongst the pictures 
there was a small 8x5 snapshot of Peter, um, which I wasn't expecting at all. And that wow. was such a casual picture mm. that I felt that even I was encountering a new side to him, to someone I knew pretty well. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Did you go to the funeral? Was there a few, like, what was the sort of aftermath of this shocking event? There was a funeral and no, I, I didn't go. I felt very conflicted about if I should go or not. And I didn't go. I went, I, I couldn't, it was kind of coincidentally, but I had already had a, a trip planned to go to um, Istanbul. And I thought that maybe that was a better a better thing to do, to put space between myself and the funeral. I don't know if that was purely just shock. Mm. Probably now I wouldn't make that decision, but yes, I, I wasn't there for the funeral. I mean, you know, as we say on the show all the time, there's no right or wrong. You just have to do what you're, you can cope with at the time, I mm -hmm. think. Especially yes. with a grief as shocking as that. I say that a lot as well, like, I think shock is, you know, I think I was in shock for years after my dad died, years, 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 which I think sometimes is hard to, if you're not in the club, so to speak, as we say, hard to get your head around, but when it was a really, truly, genuinely out of the blue shocking death, like, shock takes a long time to process, because your brain for so long is like, it's not real, it didn't happen, I can call them, like, it takes so long, did you feel like, yeah, is that how you felt, that you were sort of disbelieving of it or was it more or something else i i did feel disbelieving yes but also i am um, also didn't feel in any way entitled to grief mm. because we're on such bad terms and he'd tried to reach out and i'd rejected that several times and so i was kind of paranoid actually that if i would have attended the funeral people would have said what are you doing here? Like, you had a chance to... You know. yeah. I, was, I was having some kind of, I don't know, Christmas carol paranoid <laughs> fantasy or something of, of how dreadful it would be. And I'm sure that wouldn't have been the case. Obviously, yeah. that wouldn't have been the case. But it's how I felt at the time. Just a manifestation of my own guilt, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I mean, still there are things now that, in terms of shock, that remind me of how I felt at the time. But also that I suppose that how I'll always, in a way, have echoes of that shock and grief. A year or so ago, I watched a Christophe Fanon movie, um, Chansons d'Amour, 
and there's a one of the characters in there dies suddenly. And I didn't much care for the film, but that death really affected me. Mm. It, was, it was a very profound thing to watch. Um, and also, I was listening to the New Lord record. Um, I am, I'm a Lord fan, and there's one lyric and she sings, remember what you thought was grief before you got that call. And it actually took my breath away. I felt like yeah. I'd been winded hearing yeah. that song. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, exactly. Exactly that feeling. Even though it's been a decade. And, you know, it's, it's a pop song. Like that, 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 there are echoes of that shock still. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't... This is the thing with grief. It, it, you know, it can be the cheese they liked in Sainsbury's, a lyric in a pop mm-hmm. song. Like, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to the things that get you. And, you know, it's just, I think, you know, I'm 20 plus years in, as I say, all the time in the show. And I'm much better at recognising the things that, that will get me. And I'm much, it doesn't knock me sideways anymore, mm-hmm. you know, but it still knocks me. <laughs> I still get the, like you said, that winded feeling of like, oh, oh my God. And then I'm much better now, thanks to therapy and years of, you know, dealing with it, of going, oh, okay, that's because it reminds me of my dad and that's, or that's, you know, someone dying of cancer very publicly. That can also make me feel like, oh God, oh God, oh God, because, you know, they just might look like my dad looked like at the time. Yes. And it's just, it just sets off all those like neural pathways that were made all that time ago in shock. And and your your body just takes you back there briefly. And I've learned to just kind of go, oh, okay, that's what's happening. This is okay. Whereas I used to feel it viscerally, you know, like my whole body would be like, I'm back there, this is happening. And it would take a long time to like get me down from that place. And I think there's no um, timeline on that. There's no magic number where that won't happen, you know especially a lyric like that, which is so pertinent to your yes. situation, you know? Like, it does feel like someone's talking to you. It's interesting about the guilt that you felt. I think you're not alone in that. I've spoken to so many people who who feel that, you know? Like, oh, I didn't know them well enough, or, like, we weren't talking, or they had moved on. You know, all these things that we try and put, like, oh, you're only allowed to grieve if you tick these boxes. Yes. But actually, grief just... It, it's not as um, willing as that. It's not as, compl- what's the word, Compl- compliant? Does that compliant? Grief just is whatever it is you're feeling. And whether you spoke to them or not, you obviously are terribly sad that they died. Yes, I think there's also feelings of uh, propriety and is this attention-seeking behaviour <clears throat> that, that that comes comes with this territory around guilt or if you if you're entitled to uh, to feel the loss which again is strange in a country and a culture such as this in which we're encouraged to um, go along with uh, the great tragedy of the Duke of Edinburgh's death you know he was a hero and a father to us all um, these people we've never met were encouraged to treat them like members of the family and also the representative of God and to revere them. Um, but the flip side of that is um, we're all supposed to have our top button, shirt buttons buttoned down and to get on with it, to not cause a fuss, except for when there's, you know, a sort of jingoistic ceremonial purpose. Mm, I think what you're saying is really interesting in in that the way we like to find who has the rights like who has the right to be grieving and also 
I completely relate to that. Like the, the ego thing of worrying like, oh, I'm making it about me. Like that's what this is. When like, rather than just allowing sadness, like, you're just sad. You just yes. feel really, really sad. And and I felt that, especially, you know, when we had, um, you know, the run of celebrities dying and and the I found that, so, you know, there were some people that I was like, oh, that's sad, but I'm not moved by. But, like David Bowie was like very important to me. And when he died, I was yes. very upset. And when I would read the op pieces that were like, oh, get over it. And I thought, isn't it funny that we revel in sort of tidying people up? Like, oh, you're being so silly, you know, like, like talking mm-hmm. to children rather than being like, wow, you just have all those feelings. And that's interesting. That's interesting you've got those feelings. And, and I can work it out. Like for me, my dad, like David Bowie, he introduced me. Like it's pretty, it's pretty clear psychology yes. 101 of like what my feelings were. But I still felt it. And I'm... And you do fit, you know, there is that thing of like, oh, I, I shouldn't do this. But like, obviously, like Peter was so important to you and, and you hadn't resolved that stuff, which of course, if he had lived, you would have, like you said, you were in each other's orbit. Like you can imagine all these doors, if, 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 like, of course you were sad. Like that's... I hope that we would have um, come to a better understanding. Although knowing myself, I'm certainly <laughs> stubborn enough for that not to have happened. I was also very cut up about David Bowie's death. David Bowie was hugely important to me. Um, and I was very, very, very sad when he died. I was actually in Berlin when it was announced. Oh my God. Which was a very strange experience. Yeah. I went I went over to the apartment where he'd lived with Iggy Pop. Wow. Which is now a dentist. And <laughs> it was a very, strange experience because within hours there were I don't know 30 40 people there there were flowers and candles and um, drawings and people leaving records there but it's a dentist and one <laughs> one patient I remember came out sort of just coming round from sedation stepping <laughs> out through the flowers and the weeping people like clutching their face after having, you know an extraction or something it was it was a very very strange moment but it was almost like a national day of mourning in mm. Berlin, you know, then changed the name of the the streets to David Bowie Strasse. And another thing I remember, the, the strange thing that grief does to you, it sort of alters your perception of the world, in, sometimes in very subtle ways. But there's a, one very popular haircut amongst middle-aged ladies who work in supermarkets in Germany, which is kind of a sort of plum-coloured mullet, really. And then after David Bowie had died, it was as if all of those ladies had gone and had, like, a Ziggy Stardust hairdo, even though they'd had it since, you know, 1985. Yeah, yeah. But suddenly, all, all the ladies on the checkout... In honour of David. Yeah. It was, it was That's a very beautiful image. God, imagine coming out of a dentist that, especially if you'd just been, like, on full, mm-hmm. you know, all the, all the gas and air, you'd be like, what the fuck? Yes. That's incredible. Yeah, it's just interesting how we police each other so much, you know, and it's like we live in a village, you know, and there's a, like, we're still in the feudal system. We're still in the like, oh, you can't do that. That's not right. And the big man at the house won't like it. Like, we still police each other so much rather than being like, oh, this person's really sad about this person. Oh, okay. Okay. That's your feelings. That's fine. And, and we do it, like you said, we do it to ourselves. Like you said, the way you imagined that if you went to the funerals, people would suddenly be like, how dare you? But it's actually people, mostly people just are feeling things as much as much as you are and busy with their own feelings yes yeah 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 yes massively everyone is so busy with their own feelings what was it like um sort of like the next few years with your grief when did you start 
Because as I said, the book's only just come out now. So when did you kind of start writing about it? Or did it sort of stay over there for some time of like, I'm not ready to look at that? I felt almost immediately compelled to write about Peter. And I didn't start doing that until 2018, I think, actually. Sat down to write it in the, in the most peculiar circumstances. I had been in a long-term relationship for a, almost seven years and it came to pieces in Mexico, of all places. So I found myself in Mexico at the end of this relationship and sort of very low on cash and just kind of waiting for my plane back to the UK, but on my own. And space just opened up to start writing, so I thought, I don't know anybody, I've got almost no money, so really all I can do is sort of find a corner and write in. And I thought I'd maybe try and approach writing about Peter, and I did, and that's where the, the book began, in a bookshop in Mexico City. But I quickly realised that the book was about more than just Peter's death. I had felt compelled to write about Peter's death. But there could have been a screenplay or a short story, but as it is, it became the germ of a novel, which I often think about the novel as being sort of a, tech, mm. a technology for manipulating the reader into feeling some in some way like I felt when he died. So there's a lot of the novel that's <laughs> fabricated around the idea of Peter's character in order to basically, yeah, manipulate the reader. So I've built a narrative that didn't really happen that leads up to this death and also allows me to, you know, talk about a lot of other things around the subject of grief and around the subject of memory and to kind of meditate on grief and meditate on memory and how they are flip sides of the same coin and how they inform each other and how we have a specific understanding mediated by technology and the internet now for those experiences. But I, I really resisted from 2012 to 2018 writing it because I see, thought it was kind of uh, tacky. I thought it was a, a tacky thing to write about. I thought it would be exploitative. And I also didn't think that I would have the skills to to handle the subject. But I'm glad to say now I I, I believe I do have the skills. <laughs> you definitely do. It's, it's a really incredible book and it is yeah as soon as I picked it up I did that thing of like oh I'll just start yeah I've got to read this I'll just start and then I was like not moving for like 40 minutes I was like oh my god this is so good wow. this, is hell. this is really good and I think you yeah you definitely capture that um immediacy which is why I was why I'm quite interested actually that it took you a while to write it because it, it, you feel quite you feel the tension of someone who's just found out something awful in a way like you could you feel that like mm -hmm. that I can't describe it <laughs> um and yeah, it's interesting to me having, you know, obviously I talk a lot to a lot of writers these days about grief and there's a book, there's a writer I interviewed called Richard Beard who wrote a book called The Day That Went Missing. It's an amazing book. And his brother drowned when they were children and it was never really discussed again yes. until he got to sort of 40 and he realised, you know, he didn't even know what his brother's birthday was or what, you know, it was. And again, the whole book... It's called The Day That Went Missing and it's, you know, about what happened to his brother. It is really about grief and memory. And as somebody who's 20 plus years down the line, grief and memory is, yeah, like, uh, it's a really, there's a tension, there's an intertwining, there's, they are the same thing. Um, because what you can't remember, 
and yet you can still feel in grief uh, is a complicated dance um, I suppose is a crap way of saying it and I think there's also mm. a sort of return of the repressed the return of the unknown of what you don't remember factually um, but you sort of have a sense memory of or uh, sort of shadow fear of it does come back and manifest in all these unusual ways where things you can't realize understand what the connection is between a certain experience or a certain image and what you're feeling or how you're feeling is because of these things that are hidden from you all or lost to you i wonder as well because this grief was like from a friend that maybe as your life moved on did people not know him did you find it hard to like capture for other people the peter and the life that you'd had on um actually no it's a, it's kind of strange i think there are people some people who die and the way that they're remembered that they almost become like um sacred relics in yeah. a way like um i remember when my when my nan died she died when i was 12 or 13 and i have seven siblings and at the time there were only i think four of us maybe three of us so half of them never knew her wow. but are aware of who she was and what her personality was like they never met her never knew her but they've seen the pictures and they've heard all the stories yeah. a thousand times yeah. and so they still refer to her as oh my nanny or like before nanny died or like you know it's strange and they never knew her but they know her um and likewise peter has really become one of those people because anybody that i become in any way close to <laughs> gets they get the story yeah. you know what i mean because he was such an important part of my life and has absolutely been for the past you know two years or so been sort of the focus of my professional life too mm. and one of the things i'm most proud about with this book because um the character of thomas, thomas james draws so much on peter there, there are a lot of elements of the character which are fabricated and which I borrowed from other people and other experiences or I just thought that they would work dramatically but the core of the character is Peter and when I first gave it to my agent and she read it through um, she said she later googled him and came up with the pictures and read about him and she said he's exactly how I imagined him from having read this book so I feel like in having been able to convey a sort of essence of who he was, I feel I feel very proud of that. That's amazing. That's a really amazing thing to have done for someone, especially when we were talking about those, the narrative that he didn't get at the time. Like, I think that's really interesting that, you know, you said there were all these horrible headlines and all these comments and people who didn't know him. And now, 10 years later, you're able to go, actually, here is what the soul of this person was. And this is the yes. narrative. That's really beautiful. Lauren, thank you so much for speaking to me about Peter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was so, so brilliant. And yeah, the book is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can follow Lauren John Joseph on Twitter at La, as in L-A, John Joseph, all one word. The book, At Certain Points We Touch, is available to buy now. And they have a substack, laurenjohnjoseph.substack.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was recorded remotely. It was edited by Kate Holland. The music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. Artwork by Jade Perkin. And remember, you are not alone.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.